uh, we're going to be looking at lesson number six, the first church sermon. Oh my, exciting. All right, would you bow with me in prayer? Father God, we thank you that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And all things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shineth in darkness, and the darkness comprehended it not. We certainly have seen that in the life of Christ and in the world today. The darkness does not appreciate the light of your Son, but we do. And we ask today that you would again shine your light upon us and illuminate us. We thank you for the word of God, which is quick and powerful that it is, as we will see today, used in the hands of Peter. It is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it does pierce even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit and the joints and marrow, and it is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So I would ask, Father, that you would help me to use your sword today, that all of us would wisely divide the word of truth, and that you would be honored in all that is shared here this morning. For we do pray in the blessed name of our Savior. Amen. Amen. Well, when the 120 followers of the Lord Jesus Christ were baptized by him, by Christ, with the Holy Spirit and placed into the mystical spiritual body of, of Christ, which is called his church, and they were likewise at the same time because they were clean vessels filled with the Spirit, the result was that immediately they began, began to declare the wonderful works of God which, of course, climaxed in the salvation work of his son, the Lord Jesus. The Lord's disciples were doing exactly what he had both predicted and promised that they would do in his final words before his ascension, when he said, But ye shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be my witnesses. And that's exactly what they were after the Holy Spirit came upon them and empowered them, they were his witnesses. And they spoke of him in every language, every known language of those who were present, and every dialect of that multilingual crowd that was gathered around them for the Feast of Pentecost. The devout Jews, we are told, were all amazed and they marveled that they were hearing unsophisticated Galileans speaking in so many glosses, known languages, and dialectos, dialects. How can this be? They wondered, verse 8, chapter 2 of Acts. And what does this mean? That we saw in verse 12. However, remember others... Others, the word others would suggest that these were not of the devout Jews group. You have a derisive crowd and you have a devout crowd. Get it? Derisive and de devout. Um, you also have a uh, dialect-declaring crowd. I made up two outlines for this lesson. One is a dialect-declaring crowd, then you've got your derisive crowd, and then your devout crowd, then Peter talks about the divine Christ, and then you have your delivered crowd. <laughs> Do you like that? But that's not the one you're going to get in your email this afternoon. There's another outline for that, for what I 
went with a parried sword, Pentecostal scripture, and pronounced Savior. You know, I like alliteration. Did you tell? Could you tell? Anyhow, um, the devout crowd, they were amazed. How can this be? And then they asked, what does this mean in verse 12? However, others mocked the disciples, accusing them of being full of what? New wine. Now, as I said, by Luke's purposeful use of the word others, he seems to be referring to these who were not in the group he called the devout men out of every nation. These possibly, those who were saying that you, they must be drunk, these were probably the greatest mockers of all, the Jewish religious leaders. Now, because the 120 were speaking lots of Gentile dialects and languages besides Greek, Greek was the international language at that time, they're speaking all kinds of other languages, um, which, of course, they also knew Aramaic and, and Hebrew. But uh, these religious rulers, if they were there in the crowd, and I think they were the ones that were mocking, they were so proud, they probably never bothered to learn Gentile languages. Actually, over in, I think it's Acts chapter 22, there is a Roman centurion who is shocked that Paul, the Apostle Paul, who was a Pharisee, that he could speak Greek. Because they were just too proud. They, didn't, they probably knew enough Greek to get by, but these 120 are speaking all kinds of Gentile languages. And they only know Aramaic and Hebrew. And so to them, what does it sound like? Like Kind of like the Tower of Babel to them. It sounds like a lot of gobbledygook. You know? And so they, they think they're, well, I don't think they really thought they were drunk, but they scorn them and say, you've got to be drunk. Now, interestingly, the Greek word used for mocking in verse 13 is only found in one other place in the New Testament. And it is on Mars Hill. Who spoke at Mars Hill? Paul. I just talked about him in, in uh, Athens. Paul was speaking uh, again of the wondrous works of Christ, of God in Christ, and the supposed Gentile intelligentsia, the elitists of that day, the Greeks of Athens, who prided themselves on their great and open-minded philosophical thinking. You know, their brains were so, they were open to, to all kinds of new thoughts. You know, except, it's, it's just like today. A lot of people pride themselves on their open-mindedness, except when it comes to Christianity, right? Then, then they're very, very close-minded, exactly. I always say that they're so open-minded, their brains are going to fall out. <laughs> They have already fallen out. But anyway, they, these Greeks thought they were, you know, open to all kinds of new uh, ideas. But when Paul got to the part of his speech about the Lord's bodily resurrection, what did they do? They mocked. They mocked him. You see, the derision, we have a problem. You know, this is one of Satan's greatest tools, and he is using it today in America. Mocking the Christians, mocking the conservatives, derision. That is one of Satan's greatest tools to use against the idea of sin, the idea of our Savior, and to mock the saints who actually believe in the scripture. And the problem is, is that he has succeeded very well in using this tool to silence many of us. Because we have this innate need to want to be accepted, don't we? And we don't want to be thought of as, as um, 
less intelligent or whatever the problem might be, but we have a desire for acceptance and a fear of rejection. So what Peter does is with, um, with his sword, his new, well, let me go on. I, I, I'm jumping ahead. That's just a quick review, all right? That was just a very quick review of the early morning events of the fully come day of Pentecost. And so now we come to the very first sermon of the church age. And it was preached by who? Who preached the first sermon? Peter. Peter. Now remember, only 53 days earlier, Peter, this same man, had committed the greatest denial of the Lord in all of history. You might think, well, I thought that was Judas Iscariot. No, the reason Peter's denial was worse than Judas's, really in a sense, is because Peter was a true believer. Judas wasn't. Peter, as a true believer, denied the Lord. And he was a believer who had the greatest spiritual privilege of all. Because not only was he an apostle, a a believing apostle, but he was the leader of the pack. (laughs) But now, this very same man, fully and graciously restored to his position of leadership in the apostolate by the resurrected Lord Jesus himself. Remember that? John 21, the Lord restored him to his position of leader. He, this same man, Peter, gives the inaugural sermon of the age of grace. Wow, what a privilege. The first sermon of the church age. How many sermons do you think have been preached since this first one? Millions and millions. I can't even imagine how many sermons have been preached over the past 2,000 years. But what a sermon this one is. It is something else. That's another part of my outline. I had the denier crows. <laughs> oh, and does he crow? It's not only superb, this sermon, because of his position in history, but it is superb in its simplicity and yet its profound depth. Simple words, but deep, deep, deep. It is superb in that it is very scriptural. Do you know the sermon itself, apart from the invitation, he does go on and give an invitation, um, but the, the sermon itself is about 26 verses long. Half of the 26 verses are direct quotes from the Old Testament. It is very scriptural. He quotes from Joel, and he quotes from three different Psalms of David. So what does it, that tell us? First sermon is always like a pattern. The first of anything in scripture is a pattern that we should emulate. What does this tell us about sermons down through the church age? They should be very scriptural. It tells us that it is the use of the Bible, the God-breathed words of scripture, that the Spirit uses along with the exposition of those verses to draw people to Christ. It's the word of God that has the dynamite that is powerful and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Don't go to a church where they never open the Bible. There's not going to be any power there. Not going to be alive. You've got to use, and that's what Peter does. He uses scripture and then he expounds on it, just like we're doing. He uses scripture and then he expounds on it. He explains it a little bit. And then he uses more scripture and it's powerful. How many people got added to the church after he gave this sermon? 3,000, wouldn't you like to see that in your churches? 
We don't even have 3,000 attending them. <laughs> wow. Anyway, if you go to witness to somebody, make sure you don't just the word, use the words of your own mind and your wisdom. You always, that's what led me to the Lord. The, the man and woman witnessing to me used the word of God. That was the sword that pierced my heart. They were quoting scripture to me. When you witness to somebody, use the scripture. All right, well, naturally, Peter's spirit-led message was also Christ-centered. It was simple but profound. It was um, scriptural. It was also Christ-centered. Actually, the whole sermon is centers on Christ. Why wouldn't it be? Christ-centered. Peter had been called to be Christ's witness. He would be empowered to be his witness. And he was being led by the Spirit. And the Spirit came to glorify who? Christ. Christ came to glorify his Father. The Spirit came to glorify Christ. So of course, of course this sermon is Christ-centered. The first sermon of Peter and the church age is also very practical. Because it doesn't just speak about Christ, but it tells what to do with the truth about Christ. And that is called application. A good sermon will also apply the passages of scripture to the people. What do you do about this truth that has been shared with you? It even has an invitation. Peter gives an invitation. He begins his sermon by answering the question, which was probably voiced by the devout Jews, what does this mean? And he ends his sermon with the answer to their next question, which is down in verse 37, part B. What shall we do? That was a good question. After they heard the sermon, what shall we do? It's a great sermon because it was produced by a spirit-filled spitfire of a man. Was Peter spitfire? Is that a word? I don't know, but I kind of like it. <laughs> and he was now yielding the right weapon of the Christian warrior. You know, 53 days earlier, Peter had pulled out a small dagger type of sword that he had used um, earlier that day, probably to slit the, the Passover lamb's neck. It was just a short little sword. But he had used that sword in his foolish attempt to defend the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when they came to arrest him. That's in John 18.10. The result of Peter's use of that little sword was that he whacked off the ear of the high priest's servant. <laughs> Not too effective. Now, however, Peter is using the two-edged sword of the Spirit, the Word of God. And he is not on the defense trying to defend Jesus. How silly. You can't. You don't need to defend Jesus. You don't need to defend the Scripture. Don't waste your time trying to defend it. Just open it up. It's like a lion. You don't have to defend a lion, Spurgeon said. You know what you do? You just open the cage and you let him out. <laughs> now Peter's got it right. He's not, he doesn't need to be on the defense. Now he's on the offense. What is the only offensive weapon of the Christian soldier? The sword of the spirit, the word of God. And, and, and he has a great 
a great effect using the right, the right sword. Well, with one edge of that two-edged sword, he parried, which is a word, if you look it up in the dictionary, that you use with fencing, means to ward off the blow. So with one part of that two-edged sword, he parried the derisive mockery of the devil's advocates. And with the other edge of that sword, he pierced right through to the very hearts of 3,000 people. Instead of using the physical sword that caused Jesus to have to heal a man's physical ear, Peter used a spiritual sword that resulted in 3,000 men having brand new spiritual ears. So let's look at his Peter's parried sword, okay? Acts 2, verses 14 and 15. This is right after the question of the devout Jews in verse 12, where they ask, what meaneth this? In other words, all that they had seen and witnessed that morning with the speaking of tongues, what meaneth this? And then others mocking said they were full of new wine. And then it says in verse 14, but Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words. For these are not drunken, as you suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. This is one edge of the sword. Peter is moved by the Spirit who is now not only indwelling him, but filling him. He's moved to speak out. But contrary to the old Peter, the old Simon, he doesn't go about it alone this time. He takes his stand, we are told, with who? With the eleven. That would include Matthias, with the other eleven apostles. Yes, he is the spokesman. And likely he had a very strong voice. Maybe that's, you know, the Lord gave him that voice so he could be a leader. Because they didn't have microphones in those days and obviously he was heard by a crowd that included more than 3,000 people. And nobody had trouble understanding him or hearing him. But he speaks this time on behalf of all of them and he speaks also in defense of the reputation of the others. Because he straightway denies inebriation on behalf of his new brothers and sisters. They are now a family, aren't they? He, he defends them, basically saying, of course they're not drunk. It's only 9 o'clock in the morning. He scorns their scorn, but he doesn't waste a lot of time, do you notice, belaboring the point. He goes on. He has something much more important to talk about. He's going to answer their question, what meaneth this? That's the question of the devout and serious Jews. And he is going to spend more time with the sheep than the goats. Remember that, too. That's a good application message. Um, let's see. All right, let's go on. That's all we're going to say. He didn't spend a lot of time there, so we're not going to spend a lot of time there. Let's look at Pentecostal scripture. And for this, we're going to look at verses 16 to 21. He goes on, he says in verse 16, but this is that. They had asked, what meaneth this? Notice he says, but this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And here's a quote from Joel. Joel wrote 
in Joel 2, starting at verse 28, And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. And on my servants and on my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun, the sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before that great and notable day of the Lord comes. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. All of that, down through verse 21, is a direct quote from the prophet Joel. Well, not only did Peter lift up his voice, but he also lifted up the thoughts of his audience by his appeal to Scripture. He took them to higher ground. Whenever you quote Scripture, you're taking people onto higher ground. He gave the devout Jews the explanation for what was going on, and he did so from, from something that would be very familiar to them. Now remember, these are devout. That means they have taken the time and the effort to travel all the way from their various lands to come to Jerusalem. might have taken some of them weeks to get there in order to obey God by celebrating the Feast of Pentecost. All right? These are devout Jews from all over speaking all kinds of Gentile languages, but they're Jewish. Now, there's some proselytes with them, but the vast majority are Jewish. What is one thing these people really know well? Scripture. They're Old Testament Scripture, so that's what he uses. Now, <clears throat> notice that he says in his introduction in verse 14, his address, he says, Ye men of Judea. That's a reference to the permanent residence of Jerusalem and the surrounding vicinity. Ye men of Judea. And then he says, and all ye that dwell at Jerusalem. That refers to the multitudes who lived elsewhere but were there in the city to celebrate the Feast of Weeks. Now Peter takes them back in time some 800 years to a prophecy in one of the books of the minor prophets. The book of Joel. Chapter 2, verses 28 to 32a. We had learned in Acts chapter 1 that for the 10 days following the Lord's ascension, the 120 believers, which included the 12 apostles, had been engaged in praise in the temple, prayer in the upper room, and what else were they engaged in doing? Bible study, right? Remember? Searching the scripture. Perhaps... Just as they had found the passages regarding what to do about the vacancy in the apostolate that was left by Judas Iscariot, as they were searching the scripture, they may have also found this passage from Joel regarding what Jesus had told them to wait for. Remember, he had told them in Acts 1 verses 4 and 5 to wait to tarry in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, which he went on to say was going to be the baptism of the Holy Spirit. So perhaps they discovered this passage in Joel, or maybe 
the resurrected Lord Jesus himself had shown them this passage. Remember, in his 40 days of post-resurrection appearances, he taught them from the scripture. So maybe he showed them this passage. I don't know, except that Peter did by the day of Pentecost, he knew this passage. And he, me he memorized it because he quotes right from it. He gives it to the people gathered around him on that momentous day to explain the Pentecost miracle, that which had just taken place. Now in verse 17, which is a quote from Joel 2.28, we learn that this prophecy concerns a certain time, a certain era and that era is called here by Peter the last days the last days now that term is used five times in the New Testament the last days one of those times is in Hebrews 1 verses 1 and 2 you know in sundry times and diverse manners God spoke to man through his prophets but God in these last days has spoken unto man unto us by his son so we read in Hebrews 1 2 that the last days began when God began to speak to man through his son by his son so this time frame of God's working with the world in his redemptive plan began with the ministry of Christ on earth. That's when the last days began. When the Lord Jesus began his earthly ministry. The era ends, the last days end, according to Peter's words of Acts 2.20, which is a quote from Joel 2.31, with that great and notable day of the Lord. Now, there are different ways the day of the Lord is used in the scripture. You can read all about that in your notes that will be sent out later on today. But let me just say that right here. He is talking about the ultimate day of the Lord, which is the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. So the last days begin, or began from where we are, began with Christ's ministry when he came to earth. And they will end at the time of his second coming, his return. The great and notable day of the Lord. That's the last days. There are two events that the prophet Joel said would occur during these last days. Now there are many, many events in the last days. But he gives two. One at the beginning of the period known as the last days. And one at the end of that period known as the last days. By the way, where are you and I in history? We're in the last days. Now, the last days have been at least 2,000 years long. Long period of time. But the first one is described, the, the beginning of this era is described in verses 17 and 18, and it's essentially God's outpouring of his spirit, which began, it's still going on. Every time somebody gets saved, God's spirit is pouring out on that person. But it began on Pentecost. The second event of the last days is described in verses 19 and 20. And it has to do with wonders in heaven above and signs in the earth beneath. Celestial and terrestrial signs and wonders. And those will occur when? Right before 
the end of the last days, right before the Lord's second coming, right before that great and notable day of the Lord, which will be the fulfillment, by the way, of the Feast of Trumpets. So Joel's prophecy, we find, doesn't expand. He doesn't go on and expand on the details of the second event of the pre-second coming signs and wonders. He doesn't go on to talk about the signs and the wonders. If you want to know about them, you can read Revelation, right? chapter 6 to 19. The Lord returns in chapter 19. Or you can look at the Olivet Discourse when um, Jesus talked about the sun darkening and the moon looking like blood, etc. But Peter and Joel do not expand on that part of it. But they do expand on the details regarding the first part of the last days. The outpouring of God's Spirit. Are you still following me? Okay, you got to hang on tight, don't you? <laughs> now, according to the words of God through his prophet Joel, what is it that would happen when God poured out his Spirit? at the beginning part of the last days. Well, Peter, again quoting from Joel, tells his audience of two results. When God pours out his spirit, two results. The first is that sons and daughters of Israel, did you notice the possessive pronoun your, your sons, your daughters, it shall come to pass, this is verse 17, it shall come to pass in the last days I will pour out of my spirit upon all flesh, notice the word all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Who is that in reference to? Israel's sons and daughters. Jewish people. As he would also go on and say that the spirit would be poured out on the Gentile world who had been so long neglected by the Jewish people. That's why he uses the possessive pronoun my in verse 18, and on my servants and my handmaidens I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall also, we could throw in the word also, prophesy. So he says that he's going to pour out his spirit on all flesh. All flesh. What does that speak of? Jew and Gentile. To begin with, who would, who would prophesy first in the church age? The Jews, the Jewish people, the sons and daughters of Israel. And then it would transition and most of the prophesying would later on come through God's servants and his handmaidens, the Gentiles. So the first result of the outpouring of God's spirit at the beginning of the era called the last days is that people of all flesh will prophesy. The outpouring will be indiscriminate for young men, young women, servants, handmaidens, Jews, Gentiles. On the part of God's spirit-filled people, regardless of their age, regardless of their sex, regardless of their race, regardless of their status in society, there will be this ministry of prophesying. That's the first result. The second result of the outpouring of God's Spirit is found in verse 17b, the latter part. It says, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Now there are some 18 or 19 spiritual gifts found in the New Testament. But there is only one spiritual gift 
that is mentioned in this whole Joel passage that Peter quotes regarding the outpouring of the Spirit. And that spiritual gift is prophesying. Okay? In addition to this spiritual gift, there is the prediction of visions and dreams. But visions and dreams are not spiritual gifts. Don't ever come to me and tell me that you have the gift of dreams. Okay? <laughs> you might have had a dream, and it might have made an impact on you, but it's not a spiritual gift. These are states in which people, before the scripture was written and completed, the New Testament, before it was completed, these are states where sometimes God would give revelations. You know, this is before the scripture was ended. And he did. People did in the days prior to the completion of the New Testament. This was true in the Old Testament too. Daniel had visions. Ezekiel had visions. You know, there are all kinds of visions going on. Jacob had the vision of the ladder going on. You know, before the Old Testament was completed. Now, before the New Testament was completed, we had some visions going on. Can anybody think of one in the New Testament? John, the whole book of Revelation is a vision. And Cornelius, yes, and Peter had the vision, remember, of the sheet coming down from heaven telling him that he could have dietary freedom. I am so glad for dietary freedom. We can eat anything we want to, <laughs> including bacon and pulled pork. <laughs> and then Ananias um, uh, well, Saul had a vision on the road to Damascus. Ananias had a vision that he was to go to a street called Straight and look at a certain house and find a man named Saul. You know, Paul of Tarsus. There were visions in the New Testament before it was, um, and dreams before it was completed. What is so significant is that Peter here is explaining the tongues speaking in terms of an Old Testament prediction that said when God poured out his spirit in the last days, people from all mankind, all flesh, would prophesy. Now what does that word mean exactly? Prophesy. Well, it is used here in a very broad way. Sometimes that word is used in a limited way to speak of a prediction regarding the future. And sometimes that word in scripture is used in a very general way to mean a proclamation of any kind. For example, in 1 Chronicles 25, the word prophesy is used of people who minister in music. Did you know that? The temple singers and the harpists were proclaiming the word of God musically. Is that possible to do? Absolutely. When we sing hymns, you know, that are Christ-centered and godly hymns and the choir sings, they're prophesying, proclaiming forth the wonderful works of God in Christ. Obviously, they weren't predicting the future, okay? So that was used in the broad sense of speaking forth truth. The word is also used throughout the New Testament for preaching, it is even used for a person giving testimony of what the Lord has done and is doing in one's life. 
In this passage from Joel, in the book of Acts, it is even used to refer to speaking forth the wonderful works of God in other languages, Gentile languages. So with that understanding, let's look at the last verse of Joel's prophecy, which is quoted by Peter in verse 21. In this era, which is called the last days, when God's people are indwelled by the Spirit of God and speak forth the wonderful works of God that he has wrought through his Son, it shall come to pass that... What's the next word? Whosoever... That kind of goes along with all flesh, doesn't it? Now, whosoever will call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Where does that verse come from, ladies? The Old Testament. The Old Testament. You see, these Jewish people were supposed to be doing this all along, weren't they? Giving the message to whosoever. Is it any wonder that the Holy Spirit led Peter to use this particular Old Testament prophecy as his explanation for what was happening on Pentecost? It was a great verse, a passage to use. The Holy Spirit led him to use it. So what was happening? Well, unfortunately, most people get all hung up on the tongue speaking of that day. Or if they make it past that part of the passage, they focus on the rushing mighty wind. Or maybe they focus on the cloven tongues like of as fire. But they miss the fact that the whole heart of the Pentecost miracle is in the great possibility for all of God's people. Everyone who belongs to him has the potential of being a prophet in that they can proclaim the gospel message of salvation. Any Christian can proclaim forth the gospel message to anybody, whosoever, will listen. It's not inclusive, is it? It's for the whole world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. It doesn't have to be spoken. The gospel doesn't have to be spoken in a building called a church. It doesn't have to come from the lips of an ordained preacher. It doesn't have to come from a seminary-trained Bible teacher. I have no seminary training. I was just a young girl who got and fell in love with the Lord and wanted to study Scripture. I'm a mom and a grandmom and a housewife. And yesterday I was out on my tractor mower. I have no Bible training whatsoever. It can come through a man. It can come through a woman, an old person, a young person, even a child, right? A servant or a CEO of some big company, a preacher or a non-preacher. The only thing that is necessary for a person is that a person um, who gives forth a message be a person in whom God's Spirit dwells. And who is that? Anybody who's saved. Anybody who's saved. Anybody who belongs to the Lord. Everyone who has been born again. The gift of prophecy had once been the exclusive gift of Israel. Now that gift was given to the church, which includes Jew and Gentile. It will return the gift of prophecy, speaking forth the salvation message, once again will return to Israel in the tribulation through the witness of the 144,000 Jewish 
witnesses to the Gentile people of the world who are left behind after the church is raptured. The gift of prophecy will go back to Israel, to the Jewish people. You getting it? But for now, it's the, the gift of the church. This was all, all of this was actually a fulfillment, once again, of the Lord's last statement before his ascension, when he said, But ye shall receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon ye, you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. That's for all of us. We are all his witnesses. All right, pronounced Savior. Now, this is the main body of the sermon, and it's in verses 22 to 31. He says, Peter says in verse 22, Ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs which God did by him in the midst of you, not in any secret place, in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. Him being delivered by the determinate counsel and foreknowledge of God, ye have taken and by wicked hands have crucified and slain, whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. Now he's going to quote from David, from a psalm of David, Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. For David speaketh concerning him. Now the next words were words of the pre-incarnate Christ. Not the words of David. David is speaking for Christ. David speaketh concerning him. Now this is Jesus speaking. I foresaw the Lord always before my face, for he is on my right hand. You know, Jesus, when he went to heaven, sat at God's right hand. Here, Jesus is saying to his father, you were always at my right hand. While I was on earth, you were my right hand of power. You were my strength. That's what he's saying. That I should not be moved. Verse 26, therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. Moreover, also my flesh shall rest in hope. Because thou wilt not leave my soul in Hades. That is really not supposed to be hell. It is Hades, okay? Neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life. Thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Now, this goes back to Peter speaking, all right? Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulcher is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne, that is a quote from Psalm 132.11, he, see, he's speaking of David, David, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, Hades really, not the lake of fire, but Hades. His soul was not left in Hades, neither his flesh did see corruption. This, I hope you're getting this, but if not, you know, study more the notes. But he's saying David saw way back, a thousand years previous, David saw the resurrection of Christ. He also saw, to see a resurrection, you have to see a death. He saw a death. Amazing. 
So Peter gave a spirit-filled, scriptural, and thus authoritative explanation for the events that had caused the crowd to ask, what meaneth this? His answer is, this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel concerning things that will come to pass in the last days. Now that, to hear that, would have been shocking to these devout Jews hearing him say that about the last days. Why would that have been shocking to them? Well, because his announcement that the last days had already begun meant one thing to them. They knew that the term the last days was a reference to messianic times. So in saying that this outpouring of the Spirit is that which Joel spoke about at the beginning of the last days meant the Messiah had already come. That's what it would mean to them, understanding their Old Testament scriptures. And uh, that is exactly what Peter meant. <laughs> they got it right. The truth is, that's the truth, and he goes on to explain uh, this is the theme of his first and greatest sermon. Yes, the Messiah already has come. Now, as we discuss the main body of P Peter's sermon, we're going to see that he begins by boldly, boldly challenging his listeners to really hear really hear the words that he is going to say next. He says, ye men of Israel, hear these words. And then he goes on to present to them the proof that Jesus of Nazareth, and you know when he said those words, it was like electricity. <laughs> but he's going to give them the proof that Jesus of Nazareth was and is their long-awaited Messiah. <clears throat> and for Peter to do this, with the eleven standing there with him, in the heart of the city that just 53 days earlier had crucified Jesus of Nazareth for blasphemy, this was really extremely dangerous for Peter and the others standing with him. And what does it show us? It shows us the transformation in these men. These are the men who had scattered from him when he was arrested and Peter denied him three times because of fear and remember they're all in the upper room and the door is shut, locked, why? for fear of the Jews what caused this transformation in these guys? I'll tell you what caused the transformation, they had seen the Lord Jesus Christ bodily resurrected, he taught them from the scripture that all this was the determinate counsel of God and it was meant from eternity past and now they were filled with the spirit, that made the difference and I just answered one of your homework questions if you were listening if you had ears to <laughs> and here's another miracle just think of this Peter goes on for all these verses and he is never once interrupted that and what you know I thought about Stephen when he finished his sermon what did they do with him stone him to death it's a miracle of the Holy Spirit I believe that he was not interrupted, he was not shouted down, and he wasn't stoned to death on the spot. It, that's really a greater miracle of the Holy Spirit's power, I think, than all the glosias and dialectos. <laughs> it's by far, by far the greatest miracle of the Holy Spirit that he is at work using this sermon this scriptural sermon, to convict and convince 3,000 people of the truth of Peter's words, which centered 
on one who the Jewish leadership had just crucified. That's a great miracle. Actually, this is the continuing work of the Lord himself. Isn't that what we said the whole book of Acts is? The continuing work of the Lord Jesus by his spirit through his church. And that's what this is. For the first time, he is using the witnesses of his newborn church. Look at verse 47. It says, the Lord added to the church. This is the work of the Lord. The triune God, you see, had performed such an amazing miracle on Pentecost morning that Peter had the undivided attention of his audience. They had never, in Israel's history, they had never seen such an outpouring of the Spirit. Yes, of course, there were times when the Lord had raised up great, a great leader like Moses, or like David, or Daniel, and likewise, he had anointed with his power some great prophets, like Elijah, and Elisha, and Isaiah, but never, ever, had there been ten dozen people all at the same time, men and women, a wide variety of people, and in one place who were so obviously empowered by God's Spirit, proclaiming forth with bold assurance and authority the wonderful works of God in the languages and the dialects of the Gentile world. It was, when you think about it, it was a fantastic, amazing miracle. And it got the attention of these people. And they wanted to hear Peter's explanation, so they did not interrupt him. And remember, these are devout people. That's going to be very important when I talk to you, Lord willing, next week. Right, about this. We're going to continue this sermon, so some of what might be fuzzy now will get all ironed out. Well, after having spoken the name Jesus of Nazareth, Peter knew very well that the multitude would demand convincing proof for the daring declaration that he had just made. And that's exactly what he proceeds to do in verses 22 to 35. Uh, we're going to look at it in four sections. The deity credentials of his life, the determinate counsel of his death, the divine climax, his resurrection, and the disciples' confidence of his ascension. So Peter goes on to prove Jesus is the Messiah by talking about his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. It's a very organized sermon. The first part, the divine credentials of his life, is in verse 22, where he said, Ye men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs, which God did by him in the midst of you, as ye yourselves also know. There was really no excuse for anyone of that day to have rejected Jesus of Nazareth as a prime candidate to be the true Messiah, because he had presented his credentials to the entire nation in the midst of them. And he did so with an innumerable number and a vast array of miracles that covered every single aspect of life and death. 
I could review them, but you know what they are. He covered the demonic world, the spiritual world, creation. He had power over creation. He even had power over death, etc. Leprosy, the whole nine yards. He showed himself a man approved of God by his public display of these things. Miracles, wonders, and signs. Those fantastic miracles proved he was exactly who he claimed to be. Who did he claim to be? Messiah. They were messianic credentials. You could look them up in the Old Testament. Said when he came, he would be able to heal the lame and give sight to the blind, etc. Um, so he, he, they proved who he was. Nicodemus caught on early, didn't he? Remember Nicodemus talking to Jesus in John chapter 3? He said, no man, we know that no man can do these miracles except God be with him. And the man born blind. He wasn't even a Pharisee. He wasn't a rocket scientist. But he said, one thing I know, I was blind and now I see. No, duh. Who's going to do that? Who's going to give light? Satan? No, God. Obviously, this is a man of God. Even the Lord's greatest enemies, the Jewish religious rulers, never did and never could deny the fact of his miracles. They knew. Of course, they attributed them to Beelzebub, but they could not deny his miracles. Well, the second proof is the determinate counsel of his death. And this is given in verses 23 and 24. For time's sake, I already read those, so let me just go talking about them. In verse 23, Peter speaks of the mystery of divine of divine sovereignty and human responsibility in one great event. Now, that's two doctrines, but they, they you know, divine sovereign, sovereignty, the election, you know, and then man having human responsibility, free will. How do those two come together? Well, I'm sorry, if you try to wrap your mind around it, you're going to get a headache. They're both taught in Scripture, and they both came together in one event, the cross. He brings this up, in anticipation of the objection he knows would immediately arise in the minds of those listening to him. You see, that objection is that if Jesus was the Messiah, then why was he crucified? How did, if he was the Messiah, how did he allow himself to become, quote-unquote, a victim? How could the Messiah be hung on a tree? When Deuteronomy 21.23 says that God himself curses such a man, how could he be the Messiah? Well, before that objection could be raised, Peter declares that the death of Jesus was pre-planned. It was all pre-planned. In fact, when God acted in creation, he also acted in redemption. It says that Jesus is the lamb slain from when? The foundation of the world. When God acted in creation, he also acted in redemption. You see, the Lord God omniscient knew that by creating man with a free will, he didn't want to be loved and served by a bunch of robots. He wanted to give us free will. Okay? When he decided that, he knew that sooner or later, man would choose to sin. And that his own holiness, God's holiness, would demand full payment for that sin. He also knew that he would provide himself the full payment for that sin and the free pardon for that sin. So in the fullness of time, he knew he would send forth his son, the second person of the triune Godhead, and that God would become flesh. And although he would prove himself to be God by his perfection, 
his perfect life, sinless life, by his mighty miracles and wonders and signs, by his alignment, perfect alignment with every single messianic credential, and by his unchallengeable wisdom, God knew that in spite of all that, man would do what? (laughs) Murder him. Man would crucify him. He knew all that because it was his determinate counsel and foreknowledge. Now to understand that, we need to look at the Greek words for some of these words. The Greek word for determinate, was God's determinate counsel, is chorizo. It's spelled H-O-R-I-Z-O. What word do you think of from that? Horizon, that's where we get our word horizon. You see, it was on the horizon of God's redemptive plan from the very beginning. Now, the Greek word for counsel is vulme. That doesn't sound like anything. (laughs) But it refers to God's will, God's plan, his purpose. The death of his son was on the horizon of his planned purpose for mankind's redemption. The word foreknowledge is the Greek word. Now, this one you're going to recognize. Prognosis. Prognosis. And it means a lot more than simply knowing something ahead of time. Of course God knows everything ahead of time. He knows the end from the beginning, right? It's not just that God saw ahead of time that Israel would reject his son and so he worked that into his plan. If you think that way about God's foreknowledge, you are really robbing him. You are destroying him of his sovereignty and his omniscience. Rather, the word prognosis denotes the idea of foreordination. Jesus was delivered into the hands of men who crucified him because God had foreordained it to be that way. He had pre-planned it. He didn't just work it into his plan because of what happened. You get it? In fact, the Lord Jesus was involved in that plan from eternity past. So he voluntarily laid down his life, didn't he? He did. He said, no man taketh my life from me, but I lay it down to myself. You know, we are not saved by the murder of a man. Would that bring your heart a whole lot of comfort to know that you, are, you have been saved by the murder of a man? No. I don't need a man to be murdered to save me because that isn't going to really save me. I need a savior to save me. The good news is that we are saved by the death of the one who was delivered, delivered purposely. He didn't have to let them arrest him. He was delivered by the determinate counsel and foreordination of God. However, having said that, Peter then mentioned the guilt of the human side of the cross. God's foreordained plan does not absolve guilty men of their, of their part in crucifying Jesus. So, you know, in one sense we say he was murdered. On the other sense, he really wasn't murdered, was he? He laid down his own life, but both somehow go hand in hand. These men chose to do so. They willfully chose to crucify him. Peter boldly and bluntly indicts them, 
saying that they, the Jews, had taken him and by wicked hands, which is literally lawless hands, they had crucified him and slain him. What we have presented by Peter is what we find really throughout the scripture. The absolute sovereignty of God working side by side with the responsibility of man. Both are taught in the scripture. And this seeming paradox was also stated by the Lord himself in Luke twenty-two, twenty-two, where he said, And truly, the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. Same thing going on there. Both working hand in hand. All right, the divine climax is, of course, the Lord's resurrection. Did I read that, verse 24 to 32? Yes, I read that already. Um, so I won't reread it. But the one thing above all others that proves not only the Messiahship, but the deity of the Lord Jesus is what? What's the great proof? We talked a long, long time about it. His, yes, his bodily resurrection from the dead. This is why it's always at the center of all the apostolic preaching, the resurrection. It was the climax of God's redemptive program for sinful man. Now, his bodily resurrection was uh, predicted by David. He quotes from David in Psalm 16, verses 8 to 11. David, I already kind of read that to you, explaining it as we went along, but basically David Said, you know, speaking for Jesus, said that his flesh could rest in hope because Jesus knew his soul would not be left in Hades, and he also knew that God would not suffer thine holy one to see corruption. That is speaking about, of course, a resurrection. And to have a resurrection, you have to have a death. David saw ahead of time the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. Now, he was inspired to write those words. Those were the words of Jesus. But David saw that and he understood that it was speaking of the coming Christ. Um, and the Jewish people knew this too. I mean, he, Peter goes on to say, this, David isn't talking about himself here. Because you can go and look. His sepulcher, his tomb is with us to this day. You can, you can dig it up and see that David's bones, his body is still in that grave. He, David was not speaking about himself when he said his flesh would not see corruption. And the, the audience might have wanted to argue with Simon, but they couldn't argue with scripture. So they can't argue with Peter here. David also knew, and this is a uh, quote from Psalm 132.11, that God had sworn an oath to him. Now this is part of the Davidic covenant. David knew God had told him that from the fruit of his own loins would come forth the Messiah. All right, To sit on his throne for how long? Forever. Right. David understood that all of this looked ahead of time to the coming Messiah from his descendants who would somehow die and yet somehow be resurrected from the death, dead. So Peter here is telling the Pentecostal crowd that the psalm of David was with reference to a resurrection and it was a bodily resurrection. His flesh would not see corruption. It wasn't just a spiritual resurrection. 
And it wasn't David's own body he was talking about because his body was in the tomb. That's all you have to understand. All right, David spoke of the promised Messiah. And Peter now gives his powerful conclusion to what he had begun to speak about back in verse 24 regarding Christ's resurrection when he said, Whom God hath raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be holden of it. His conclusion, he began with that, you know, that nobody could keep him down because it wasn't possible for death to hold him. And now he concludes on the same matter, saying, This Jesus, this is verse 32, This Jesus hath God raised up, whereof we all are witnesses. You see these 120 people? All of us have seen him resurrected from the dead. This same Jesus. Death had no power whatsoever over Jesus. Why? Who is he? He is the resurrection and the life. He doesn't just have breath in his nostrils, does he? So we talked about a couple weeks ago. Death could not hold him because of who he was. He is the source of all life. Also, because of his own divine promise. He had said over and over again that he would rise from the dead on the third day. And because of who he is, he keeps his promise. God had said he would not allow his Holy One to see corruption. So it was God's promise as well. So, of course, death could not hold him. All right, I'm almost done. Let's look at the disciples' confidence of his ascension. This I didn't read, so look with me at verses 33 to 36. Peter says, Therefore, being by the right hand of God exalted, and having received of the Father the promise of the Holy Ghost, he, who is he? Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, he hath shed forth this, which ye now see and hear. What's the this? The answer to their question. What meaneth this? What meaneth this? Speaking in all these languages and everything, this miracle? He says, this is the result of Jesus ascended to the right hand of his Father and sending forth the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. Verse 34, for David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself. Now this is a quote, I know this is really confusing to y'all, but this is a quote from Psalm 110 verse 1, and I'm going to talk more about this next week, because this is such an important verse, but Peter says that David isn't the one seated at the right hand of the Father. David isn't the one who resurrected from the dead, but he say, because David wrote these words from Psalm 110.1, the Lord, that's Jehovah, said unto my Lord, that's David's Lord, and that second Lord is Adonai. So it's Jehovah said to my, David's Adonai, sit thou on my right hand until I make thy foes thy footstool. Therefore, this is Peter talking again, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified both Lord and Christ. He's declaring the deity of Jesus. You know what amazes me? In this sermon, Peter talks about the Holy Spirit, he talks about God the Father, and he talks about the deity of Christ, the Messiah. What is that? It is a trinity, isn't it? And these monotheistic Jews, 3,000 of them, believe it. They didn't have a problem with that. Why? 
What's the first word for God used in the, New, in the Bible? Elohim. Do you know that's a plural? I am ending. We'll talk about that more next week too. All right, Peter tells his listeners that not only did Jesus rise from the dead, but he ascended to heaven where he was seated at the right hand of God and sent the promise of the Father, which was the Holy Spirit, precisely as he said he would do. And this shedding forth of the Holy Spirit is that which you now see and hear with your own ears. They had asked, what meaneth this? And he brings them right back to where he started. He tells them that what they had just witnessed was the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the promise of the Father, once his son had risen and was seated at his right hand and was glorified. He said in John 7.39, you know, I can't send the Spirit until the Son is glorified. Well, then Peter quotes from one more Davidic psalm in order to demonstrate that the ascension and the exaltation of Jesus spoken of in that psalm is not a reference to David at all, but to David's greater son, the one that would come from his loins, the Messiah. How did he show that? He showed it the same way the Lord had used this psalm with the religious rulers back on Passion Week Tuesday. And they had come to him and they gave him one argument after another trying to trip him up with his words and he defeated them all so that they were silent. And then he said, well, I've got a question for you. <laughs> and he said, the Christ, whose son is he? And they said, David. And he said, well, if he's David's son, then why did David call him my Adonai? And you know what? It says no man durst ask him any more questions after that. Peter was there that day. He was listening. And he used that same piercing scripture. And boy, he got right to the heart of these people. The summary of the first sermon of the church age, Peter gives very boldly. And it's a pronounced declaration of warning. He says, therefore... Let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made that same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord, David's Adonai, even though he's David's son, he's David's Lord, made him both Lord and Christ. In other words, the Messiah you have so long waited for is God, deity. He, he was yielding a new sword the sword of the Spirit, and it cut to the quick the hearts of people so that they asked a new question. And that's what we're going to start with next week. What's their new question? A good one. What shall we do? And he tells them. Let's pray. The answer to their question simply is believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. Thank you, Lord, for the simplicity of the gospel. I do pray if there is one here who is asking that question, what shall I do? I don't know him. I don't know where I'm going to go when I die. Our answer, repent and be saved. Lord, how we love you and we thank you for the fact that your word is, is truth. And we can bank not only this life, but all of eternity on it. We love you. I ask you to go with every woman. Help her to enjoy the, enjoy the beauty of this day that you have given to us. Bring us all back safely. Lord, please don't give us another snow day next week so we can gather together. We love you and we pray in your name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.